Dory 1, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to Military Veteran Dad, episode 81. It's the first week in July. We are just getting through summer. July 4th just wrapped up. I hope your July 4th was absolutely amazing. Today's episode with Jason Matthews is going to be deep into why you do the things that you do. And let's be honest, there's a lot of hidden nuances in the way we do things every day. We don't even often think about the way we do things or the why we do things or how those things actually even came into our life, how we started doing things the way we did. And Jason Matthews knocks those down and if you have any idea of any curiosity about why you're starting to do the different things you do in your life, why is this the way I wake up? Why is this the way I go to bed? Why is this this the place I work? This episode will unpack it in a very deep way. So get ready for an awesome ride because this episode is going to go in places that are near and dear to my heart. And so without further ado, let's get started with Jason Matthews. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, for, thank you for having me here. This is going to be another great interview, and we are going to talk about something near and dear to my heart because today's topic is going to be relationships. It's going to be friendships. It's going to be the actual science, the psychology that goes into what makes a solid friend. So, Jason, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, your military experience, and what your family looks like right now. So, First of all, I want to thank you again for having me on here and for giving me this opportunity to uh, have a platform to speak on. Um, as far as how I came about this process, it all started when I was about 15 years old, when I understood that I didn't make friends very well and I didn't know why. Um, I was the kind of kid that always got bullied. I was the one that was picked on, isolated, or treated unfairly, or so I thought. So what I started doing was talking less and listening more, becoming very observant and really understanding how people interact when they are um, interacting positively with each other and they're doing things um, that uh, gain approval from other people. And this kind of led me down a rabbit hole of human behavior where I started looking at forensic psychology and I started looking at profiling and I started looking at all kinds of other ways of being able to understand human behavior, and I thought I had it down. I mean, I could, I could tell who a person was and how they were going to act just from two minutes of interacting with them. But what I didn't have, what still was the mechanism of how do I use this in a way that gets people interested in me, so that they want to listen to me more, and that went on for many, many years. It, um, actually, not knowing that helped me burn a marriage, helped me go through many relationships, helped me destroy many friendships, and also sink quite a few businesses. So I got that going for me. And um, it wasn't until about, I want to say about four years ago when I started studying NLP, neurolinguistic Programming. And for those who don't know, neurolinguistic Programming is just the way that we interpret our world through the language that we use, the specific words and phrases that we use to identify us, identify other people, and identify our world at large. So once I started understanding that, and I realized that the words that I was using were not compatible with how other people saw their own reality. And so they became quite um, standoffish because they didn't understand where I was coming from. And I gave no bridge for them to understand. And one concept in NLP is the uh, quality of communication depends on your ability to make sure you are understood by your counterpart. And as I studied that, I stumbled about two years ago, I stumbled on a uh, research psychologist by the name of Dr. Stephen Porges. And he was studying the effects of trauma, especially in regards to um, how people connect. And he came out with this theory called the polyvagal theory. 
And the polyvagal theory is all about how we use connection for survival and how we use it to create safety. And safety is defined as the feeling of being secure and having opportunities for support from others. So by when we do that, we're able to connect with each other a lot more. And we're able to create that sense of belonging with each other, which then creates the idea of what else can I do to feel understood, respected, and valued, and to help other people feel understood, respected, and valued by me. And that kind of led me to where I am now, where I've, where I've created my program of uh, relationship building. Now, as far as my military career, I joined the military in 2004, and I started as an enlisted soldier um, in logistics. And then I got my commission uh, as a, in, um, in communications. And I have to say that I was probably one of the worst soldiers that ever happened to grace the U.S. Army because I didn't like the way that things were done. And I was always very argumentative. Another one of my, another one of my uh, endearing qualities that helped me lose friends and alienate people. And because of that, I, found, I became very disenfranchised with my, uh, my career in the military, especially after I came back from Afghanistan. I felt like there was nothing really left for me to do in the armies. So I just allowed myself to be passed over twice for captain. And then I was said, they said, we know your service is no longer needed. Thank you very much. So I was honorably discharged. And then um, I was able, I was free to move up to Canada from Massachusetts to be with my now wife. And the rest is history, really. I've, I've been here for, gosh, I think it's almost six years now. So it's, it's been quite a while. <laughs> it's, been, it's been fun. Wow, that is quite the story. And I can tell you, I can relate to a good portion of that because when you started off your story as a 15-year-old boy that wasn't good at making friends, that was my story that I've talked about and done many solos on this podcast about. And what in the part that I was, I'm interested to see if you had the same thing that you were doing. Every time I wanted to try to fit in, I would try to be someone else that I thought they wanted to be. And every time I would do that, I would lose a little bit of myself. And then every time you keep doing that, then you get to a point where you really don't know who you are or you don't really know what makes you unique. And that also leads you into a pit because you feel isolated because you don't even feel comfortable being by yourself because you've changed your personality so many times, you don't really know what comes out. And that's really where loneliness comes in. And you're absolutely right because someone who doesn't know how to fit in, if they, if they, this is part of the problem with studying too much and implementing too little is that you begin to believe that you have to be someone else in order to fit in, only to realize that what you're doing is completely fake and people see through that anyway. And they still don't want to be with you. They still don't want to share their toys. They still don't want to, they still just want to throw rocks at you. So <laughs> they, uh, it, it doesn't work that way anyway. And when you do that, not only do you lose those friends, but you also begin to feel lonely and you begin to emotionally shut down. You start to feel numb like there's no hope and, and you begin to feel like no matter how close you are with someone, it's like there's this invisible shield that like you just can't reach them. And by reaching, I mean reach them emotionally. Like there, there's just, there's too great of a distance. And so that kind of creates even more of a feeling of isolation and isolation is the biggest fear that human beings have because if you're isolated, you're weakened. And if you're weakened, you die. And that's not something people talk about, and especially veterans. So if we even label it into veterans, active duty, it's kind of a oxymoron in, in the military because in the military, we are trained and designed to work as a team, a cohesive unit to survive together. That the idea that you can complete and win a war by yourself is completely the opposite of what is true and what you're taught and trained to do. But then as we go through, even if we go home, for, even if we're on active duty, if there's a dad listening to this, it's on active duty, at work, he knows a team environment is what leads to success, but he comes home and we're instantly in a different environment and we never correlate that maybe I need a team at home in order to achieve the same results. And then as you transition out, you lose what you had at, at, at work. You no longer have that team. You have a corporate culture where everybody kind of has their own little program. Everybody goes in their own little cliques. In some ways, it's like high school again, and you don't realize that you need that collective group to come together, and you, again, isolate yourself. 
And it's that isolation combined with what Marines and or Marines and any active duty that you just get isolated so hard that all those emotions, all the emotions you feel are scary. And because you don't even get really comfortable. And this is why I think why veterans often take their own life because they don't get cut. They, they no longer are comfortable in their own skin because of what they feel. They can't change how they feel. They think that this feeling is going to be permanent. And what you're talking about is the exact opposite that it, as a human being from a mil- millennia old brain, it's in our brain to survive in a tribe. That's how men did life for millennia. We, we, we hunted, we gathered, we trained. And yet somehow in 2020, with all this technology, with all this wisdom, we have forgot one of the basic core parts of our humanity, which we need to be together with people. So here's, here's an interesting thing that most veterans don't consider. When they are in an environment with other soldiers, they know exactly what's expected of them. They know what to expect of the other people, and that gives them a feeling of safety. They know what to expect. They know what's going to happen. They know how everyone is going to act, react, and respond. And that makes them feel safe. They feel secure, and they know they have opportunities for support. When they get out of that environment, they, know, they, know, they no longer know who is going to do what. They no longer have that assurance. They no longer have that certainty. And that lack of certainty, along with the um, insecurity of asking for what it is that you want, or because a lot of soldiers feel like, well, people should know because that's what I've always done. And this is much. This goes much deeper than just military. Uh, but I just want to talk about this one part for, for a second. So, when a soldier comes home, he is no longer, regardless of whether it was just basic training, whether it was a tour of duty, or whether it was actual combat. The moment that person leaves to go into the military, the person left dies. The person left is no longer there. The person who comes back is someone completely different. And what is important for families to know, and I work for a uh, organization called CharlieMike.life, and I am the uh, Gold and Silver Star Director for that, for that program. So one thing that I, I uh, have to help people understand is when a service member comes home, it's important to create a new baseline, a new idea of what normal is, because there, it's impossible for people at home to expect that when the service member comes home, that life is going to resume right where it left off. They can just take the pin out of where it was and just move on right from there. It's impossible. You need to relearn who that person is, become reacquainted. It's almost like dating all over again. It's almost like being reintroduced to your kids all over again and understanding how everyone works, how they all integrate, and how to, again, create a team from them. And it's the hardest thing because it, it's not trained. We're, we know how to interact with our brothers and sisters in arms because it was trained for us. We're, we're trained. Exactly. Exactly. And what, we, what they teach basically unwrites everything we've learned up to that point, whether it be 18, 19, 20, or in my case, 24 years of conditioning gets rewritten. And now you have to figure out how it is you interact with other people. And it's the responsibility of everyone concerned to be able to say, okay, how do we create a new normal? To say that it's up to the service member is unfair because the service member is as new to the situation as everyone else is because they might as well have completely changed bodies can change names and change personalities because essentially that person is different and it is necessary to create a new idea of what what being safe means. I love what you're talking about because I've spoken on this before. So I want to make sure that every dad listening picks up on what Jason just said. So Jason is telling you that when you're deployed, so let's use an example, you're a military veteran, you deployed to Afghanistan, you were there for eight months, you came home, you had three kids, you had a wife. She learned how to improvise, adapt, and overcome every day without you. She had to get everything done. She had to be the dad. She had to be the mom for all three kids. All three kids say they went to school every day. All three kids had bullies at school. They were picked on. They had emotional traumas. You weren't there for any of that. You weren't there to lean on your wife when she was upset that day because you were in Iraq. And you need to understand that both of you are at different emotional journeys within your life at this point. 
And empathy is one of the best tools to try to understand. And I often, the, the advice I give for dads coming back home is to try to figure out what was like, life was like when you were gone. Sit down with your kids. Try to figure out what you missed in their world. Not with judgment, not with advice, but just to listen. Because when you get build that understanding, which is that basic foundation of relationships, when you build that understanding of what life was like, you can kind of do what I call an empathy bridge that you both can then meet together and then go forward from the different points that you're at. But you first need to understand what life was like because if you just try to r- rinse and repeat, she's got resentment built up, your wife. You will never know unless you listen. And there's going to be a day, a month after you come home, and she just starts yelling at you, and you don't know why. It's probably going to be something from three months ago where you weren't there to comfort her, and she still resents you for that, but you don't even know that that happened. And so that empathy is so powerful to reconnect because life does happen. And it applies in any case. Whether you go back to work, if you're a National Guardsman, and you go back to work after getting deployed, life still happens. Empathy is the tool to help build that conduit to try to go forward together at the new point and juncture that you create together. And that's a really good point. Actually, um, with the relationship building program, which is something that I created myself, uh, I use a process called logical empathy. And logical empathy is a four-stage process. And it all, it all, it's all based on the fact that at any one time, you can experience one of two states, either fear or curiosity. And curiosity is the first uh, stage of logical empathy. When you are curious, you're learning. It's like when you were a child, you had this, you had this desire to learn because you were able to figure out how you interact with the world, where your place is, and what the importance of things were with you. And when you have that curiosity, you can then create care. And care is defined as what you focus on as you interact with people. And this is what I was talking about when we're offline. Uh, there's, there's two ways you can ever um, interact with, with a person in a situation. You can focus on what you want or you can focus on what they need. And usually what they need is to feel that they belong in a situation with you. Now, this could be a sales call. This could be a dinner date. This could be at the club with your friends. This could be at work. As long as you are paying attention to the emotional needs of the people that you are interacting with, they will feel very confident in their relationship with you. They'll feel like you actually pay attention to them and they'll want to pay attention to you as well. They'll feel good about the interaction that you have. And that leads to concern. Concern is where you begin to understand a person's ideology. And ideology is the most important factor of how to um, convince someone to do something. So I don't know if you've ever heard this acronym of RICE, everyone eats rice, and it stands for reward, ideology, conversion, and ego. So reward is if you do this, I'll give you that. We, we know about that in the military. You, target comes up, you shoot it, goes down, that's reward. Um, ideology, I'll get into that in a second. Conversion, there, there's two ways you can convert somebody, either through persuasion or through influence. And basically, it's just with con, with uh, persuasion, it's getting someone to say yes at least one time because the conditions were more right to say yes than to say no. With influence, it's transforming someone's belief system to be more like yours so that you can get them to do what you want them to do. Both can be considered highly manipulative. And if they understand what you are doing, it can backfire on you. And that's the same with ego. With ego, you're basically playing to someone's need to feel superior, to to placate their dissatisfaction, or to give rise to the fact they they are okay in neglecting something. Again, this is very manipulative. If you if you do that too often and they catch on to it, it's going to destroy any relationship that you've built. However, ideology, ideology is basically how we define ourselves. It's our motives, our values, and our um, our motives, values, and morals. And when we understand a person's motives, values, and morals, we don't have to share them, but as long as we understand them and we respect them, we gain their confidence we gain their ability to understand them on a much deeper level. We, we're, we're, we start to access levels of intimacy. And intimacy is something that is not 
um, it's not reclusive to uh, sex, to sex or to sensual activities. There are four levels of intimacy. There's physical intimacy, which is like hugging, shaking hands, a pat on the back, anything that lets a person know that they belong. There's emotional intimacy where you understand the emotions a person has and you allow them to experience their emotions without judgment. Then there is mental intimacy where you start to really become involved in their hopes, their fears, their dreams, and their secrets. And then there's spiritual intimacy, which is getting to know those values, getting to know those motives and those morals. So once you have that, you can move on to compassion. And really compassion is just your ability to invite someone else to feel compassion for themselves. Because when you do that, it is a, um, it is a, an irresistible sense of, of a reciprocity to have them get you to invite you to feel that as well. Because when you feel a sense of self-compassion, you realize that someone else is there to give a damn about you. So you must be someone who's worth giving a damn about. And so then your whole outlook about yourself changes. And then you look at things that you want to do with a, with a sense of hope. That it's actually not only possible, but it's possible by you and you deserve to do it. Let me deep dive into one particular topic that I think people get confused and I think they get lost in that you were just talking about there. When you think of trying to build that compassion, as you going through that conversation in your head and you're, you're trying to be compassionate, I think it's easy to get confused, sympathy and empathy. How do you teach those differences? Because they do have different reasons to exist and using the wrong one can send the wrong message. Right. So compassion is the act of being sympathetic with someone else. It's the act of um, feeling that, that pain with them and wanting to help them through it. And that's not what I'm talking about because that's not your lane. Your lane is not their pain. Your lane is only to help them realize that they have worth. It is helped to spark the sense of self-worth, that self-compassion, that ability to be kind to one's self. And when you realize that you can be kind to yourself, you realize that you can be kind to others and they can feel kind about themselves as well. And it creates just a, it's a viral effect where people who are kind to themselves become kind to others who then in turn have people who are kind to themselves who then be kind to others. And it cascades to more and more and more people, which, and this is what creates the feeling of trust and commitment, the ability to trust that someone's going to have your back and support you and committed to their cause because you realize that they have helped you in one of the most important ways possible, which is to feel great about yourself. So it's not about being sympathetic to their, to their pain. It's about helping them realize what worth they really have. I love what you just talked about there. And when I was recording the lessons on friendship that I just launched at freedadcourse.com, a particular point that I led with that can't, I realized that why friendships can is really for me or my belief is one of the cornerstones to really start changing your life. Like you can work on other things, but if you don't have a solid foundation of friends, you're always going to feel like you're not good enough. And the best thing about having a conversation with someone, and if you don't really, so if you go into a conversation where even you're like, okay, I'm going to create friends tomorrow and this is going to be my mission. And you don't really know who you are. You don't know what makes you special. You feel like you're just an idiot wasting oxygen every day. The best part of having a friend in your life is they reflect back the value that you can't see. And that mirroring of that value, that self-compassion that you can't feel for yourself, they're going to help you see that. And they're going to feel something that you can't feel yourself. And when you can do that, that's what really builds that basic just initial thread that like, this is a guy that I want more in my life. And I repeat often that People aren't going to remember what you said. They're going to remember how you made them feel. And if you reflect back that value of like, man, that guy just made me feel like a million bucks. I'm going to want to go back to that feeling. And that's going to be a friendship that I want to invest more in because we both help each other become better people. And that's what I loved about what you said there, because that self-compassion can be very hard, especially if you're in the pit. If you're a dad that feels like you're alone, you're isolated, your marriage is falling apart, you're not comfortable around being your dad's. If you're in that dark pit, the best place to get light reflected back is just have a conversation because they will be the light that you can't see. Because even though you're in the pit and even though you seem to be around darkness, there is light. You just can't see it. And that friend 
can be that perfect vehicle to help reflect that back. Exactly. And the, the uh, thing that I remind people about is that you, it's impossible for you to generate self-compassion. You cannot do it on, on, on your own. It's impossible. And I think it was designed that way on purpose because it forces us to connect with others on a deep level so that we can be invited to feel self-compassion because it's something that we have to realize through the interaction with others. And it's through that interaction that we believe, wow, I guess I am worth something. Because if you focus on these stories that go on in your own head and that's all you focus on, you're, you're going, you're going to end up going down a dark road because we always are our own worst critic and we always will have the most negative things to say about ourselves because we know ourselves way too intimately. And we know we have an idea of what we're capable of. We know the things that we should not do. And yet we find ourselves doing them anyway. So it's like, God damn it. Why did you do that again? What the hell is wrong with me? Why am I such an idiot? And it's easy to create that um, negative loop for ourselves. It's much easier to create that for ourselves than to create a positive loop. And it's without the, without the uh, interaction of someone else, it's almost impossible to break out of that habit. So it's as much of a um, survival mechanism for our, our self-preservation to have uh, friends and to be able to interact intimately with others as it is just a great way for us to feel good about ourselves. I love that. And I never had this thought that after you were speaking there, I had this thought that connected. So I recently grew a beard. So this beard that I have is the very first time I've ever had a beard in my entire life. And I was curious, why do men have beards? Like psychologically, physiologically, like why do men, why is that something even we can do? A lot of it goes back to that. It was a way to increase like the attractiveness of females for reproductive purposes. And I like what you said, where it was almost designed that way that you can't self love yourself, that there are certain levels of happiness that you can achieve internally only. And the idea that you need someone else, so if you think of even sex, like the idea that you can connect with someone and feel ecstasy in a way that you can never feel on your own, that is something that's innately and designed in ourselves to ensure that our continuation as a human being continues, that, we, that our bodies are designed in a way to make sure that reproductiveness is something we desire. And if you think of the people in your life that you want, not necessarily just like a marriage or a girlfriend, but just a friend, those are things that we help do. And if you're in a tribe, it's like the same as if you think of wolves. The wolves are innately designed to live life in a pack for survival. The wolf on the outside will always perish. And if you live life in a pack, so we are also innately designed to do life together because that has helped us have longer life expectancy. If you live life on your own, you're most likely going to eat by lion, tigers, and bears. But if you didn't, you're more likely to survive. And we don't often think and judge those things as those aren't wrong or right. Those are our natural DNA and our psychology is wired to feel connected to other people. And that's a feeling you can't do on your own. Absolutely. Here's the, here's the funny thing. If you look at Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you look at earlier models, you see that there are the five levels. You've got basic needs, you've got security needs, you've got belonging needs, esteem needs, and self-actualization needs. But when back in the... Um, I think it was the 1970s, before, shortly before he died, Abraham Maslow actually developed, uh, came up with a sixth hierarchy of need, which is self-transcendence. And this is the um, need for us to do things for others as a way of expressing our purpose. Our purpose is to do things that actually help mankind and help the world and help everything. As, lo as long as we are in alignment with everything around us, we are in a state of self-transcendence. And this is the part that really separates us from other animals. Other animals aren't a pack because they have to, to survive. Human beings are able to not only survive, but thrive and flourish when they actually act in a way that is selfless and act in a way that helps other beings. As long as you do something that helps two or more other people, what you're doing is a good thing. I love that. And you kind of... Uh reminded me of like a beehive. If you think of like all the selfless things that a bee does in a beehive to support the colony, that's like a micro humanity in a little bit because there's so many bees. I mean, you can have millions of bees in a beehive. Like it's a little bit like a simulated world in there of they're all selflessly serving each other to support the overall common objective. And what you're also talking about there is that a lot of this isn't that hard. Like we just like some of this is can be complicated in its beginning. Like it may sound complicated what we were just talking about. 
I want to go to a place where let's talk about you're listening to this podcast right now. You're a dad that is alone. You're a dad that desires that connection, but doesn't really know where to begin. What are some of those like baby steps? Like if a dad wants to take that next right step tomorrow, what is that process that you teach to help a dad that wants to get to a place where he feels connected, but feels so lost and dark in that step? So the first thing you need to do is for all those dads who are out there who struggle with finding that connection, either finding that connection with your spouse, finding that connection with your workplace, finding that connection with your kids, with friends, with just being able to find your place in your environment, in your world. The, what, the number one thing that I would, I would suggest is make sure that you are curious about yourself, about the way that you react, about the way that you interact, about the way that you um, perceive other people and become curious about that. What is it that drove that reaction? What is it that drove that decision? What is it that drove that response? And figure out what it is that allowed you to go there and then realize that you're not doing anything wrong. What you're doing is something that was hardwired in you as a self-protective mechanism and it did its job. So make sure that you honor that part. Reflect on it and honor it and know that it's there to serve you and then find a way to help yourself understand that you're safe, that you can feel secure cure and your opportunities to be supportive and you can continue having these strategies with other people just because you have a certain reaction doesn't mean that you're bad doesn't mean that you've done something wrong it just means that you needed to react a certain way at a certain time because you felt like you were in danger so just remind yourself you're safe you'll continue to be safe and more than likely the, I'm sorry, you're safe. You have been safe for quite a while. And most likely, you will continue to be safe while you are in an environment that you are in. Exactly, exactly. And you can, you can overcome any um, intrusion that, that people create. I mean, I teach relationship building and I have relationship problems all the time. It's just something that, that we, we as humans do. We're going to screw up relationship building. It's going to happen, which is why there's the ability to repair relationships. And contrary to popular belief, there's no relationship that you can possibly be in that is ever beyond repair. Mm-hmm. It's almost where the only time you unbelieve, it's, it's where you think it's unrepairable, it's where the conversation is where it's inside your head. Because the moment you start verbalizing the real problems, you can almost always create a commonplace of understanding. Like I've gone through some Tony Robbins courses and he does his transformations in those courses and, and he'll have them on video that you're watching. And within an hour, he'll go from a, a place where there's no way he'll save this couple. And just by like that, at the end of the hour, it, he's, he's got him back together. So like, it's just a matter of verbalizing all that garbage that you have inside your head. And what I also like what you said there because a lot of veterans don't realize that when they feel something in a conversation or in their marriage, in a moment, in a moment is probably the best way to describe it. When you feel something strongly, your brain only has your past to reflect on that emotion. So that means that there's some lens that your brain is looking through at this moment that's similar to a previous time, and your brain acted that way to protect itself, just like you said, and now it's duplicating that feeling now. It's not some like new feeling like it's only the past is the interpretation of the present and you always have to remember your feelings only have your past events to understand how to feel right now and those aren't a judgment of right or wrong they just are but as you said be the detective of why do i feel this way like why am i triggered when my kid yelled at me like i shouldn't be it's, he's a two-year-old he's gonna yell at me but if you really dig deep you'll probably find that there's something in the past that happened that you were correlating to your kid yelling at you that's making you feel very bad and your brain wants to avoid that feeling. So it's going to use the same defensive mechanism as it did whenever that moment in the past happened, just as when your two-year-old's yelling at you. Right. And a lot of that has to do with the toxic loss that we've experienced um, in our in our lives, especially as child in childhood. So toxic loss, it's also something sometimes called or diagnosed as complex PTSD. But since I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, I stay away from that term. What I do is I call it toxic loss. Toxic loss is any time that you lose your ability to have agency. 
and agency is your ability to act, think, or feel in a way that makes you believe that you are free to do what you want to do. Like you have the ability to impact your own future. When that's taken away in some way, especially as a child, that creates toxic loss. And with children especially, when we believe that the people that we're supposed to depend on, that we trust to take care of us, make us feel like there's something wrong with us, that we, that we um, have either done something bad or we've been taken advantage of in some way, that stays with us because now we don't know who to trust. And a lot of people who, are, who go into the military, like myself, go in there because we're trying to find what it is that we lost. What is it that's going to give us purpose? What is it that's going to make us feel like we belong? Because we didn't, we didn't get that. Even though we had parents that gave us three square meals, put clothes on our back and roof over our head, there was something that we didn't get, which was that connection. And that connection is absolutely necessary. So we crave that in other ways. The military provides it for a time, but once that's done, we're usually worse off than when we started because now we have the expectation that we're always going to have that. We're looking for it in our everyday world. We don't see it, and that's when real depression sets in because we've had a taste of it, and it's been taken away from us. I like that where you talk about where you went into the military, and that's something when you talk about transition, there's not a lot of people out there describing it in this way that people talk about the transition when you leave the military, but that's actually your second transition. Your first transition was when you joined the military. Like there was a lot of breadcrumbs at that moment when you raised your right hand. What were you looking for? What was your desires in life? What were you wanting to do when you grew up? Like people get hung up on like, what am I going to do when I leave the military? What are you going to go back to the moment? What are you going to do when you join the military? What were you looking for? Did you find it? Do I need to do something else to find it? There's a lot of breadcrumbs in that very beginning because a lot of times we do join to either get an identity, to feel that belonging, to feel loved, or just kind of like get out of that maybe emptiness or hollow feeling that we feel when we're home. And when you're in the military, there's always so much that goes with it, especially even the Marine Corps. Marine Corps, there's so much identity that you get that it's very easy to just identify with it. And I've interviewed spouses whose husbands have taken their own life when the military takes that identity from them like a medical discharge and they've lost their entire ego, everything that was wrapped up in, they only knew who they were with that military uniform on. But it really began when they put that military uniform on. I want to take a pivot to a different way or a different topic that I want to talk about that is something that I've read about. And I know this is something that you also can speak on. When we get into a conversation and the person that we're speaking with, maybe an example with your wife or with your kids, there's often times where there's an emotional storm that they're feeling. And if we're maybe fine, maybe we're in a good state, maybe we're in a happy mood, it's often can be very hard to go from wherever we are to actually be something that can help someone else get through the storm of emotions that they're feeling. And one of the tactics is mirroring. So I was wondering if you could kind of like walk us through like when someone brings this kind of as an emotionally charged state, what are some of the things that we can do in say a normal, if we're just kind of having a good day, what are things, some of the things we do to make sure that we can be who we need to be, also not get defensive, but then also show up and actually build a connection there that actually moves that person out of that storm that they're feeling? That's a fantastic question. So the first thing that you need to do is what I had talked about before. Be very aware of how you are feeling. Be very aware of the reactions you are, you are creating. Now, when I say be aware, I don't mean control. Because you can't control your reaction. You're going to react the way that you feel you need to react in a moment. And that reaction is uncontrollable. And that's okay. Because that is your way of protecting yourself. But it usually doesn't last more than a few seconds. Especially when you realize that there's nothing that is attacking you. There's no beast jumping out of the bushes that's going to try and eat you. There's no person that's trying to take your food, your wife, your land, whatever. So more than likely, you're still safe. So in that moment, you can understand what it is that you're feeling and then take control, bring yourself back to a state of safety, and then become very curious about the person or people that triggered that emotion and find out more about what it is that they're going through and start asking questions like the what and how questions. Like, what is it that made you feel this way? How is it you came to this conclusion? What, are, what is it you're feeling right now? What, what did I do 
to create this feeling for you? Or um, at what point did you decide did you decide that you needed to feel this way? And listen, after you ask the question, just shut up. Just shut up and listen. And really understand what it is that they are saying. So when you when they say something that you feel is meaningful and that you want them to expand more on, just repeat it back to them. And and never split the difference by by Chris Voss. He says the the first, the last three words or a meaningful three words. It's more than just three words. It's usually a sentence or a phrase that they had said. It's anywhere between three and seven words usually. And when you repeat that and you repeat it with the right tone, it gets them to want to investigate to um, to uh, uh, explain even more. And the beautiful thing about communication is the more you communicate, the more calm you become. When you're communicating, it's impossible to be in a state of fight and flight. You enter a state of social engagement, which is the highest level of survival. It's, it's how we create community. It's how we create civilization. It's through that social engagement. When you're socially, socially engaged, you feel like you can be understood, you can be respected, and others can value you. And when you get someone, when you invite someone to keep talking, and you do that through the labeling that, or I'm sorry, through the mirroring and the labeling that you give. So you ask, you ask a couple of um, mirroring questions, and you say something like, it seems like, it sounds like, it looks like, and you give them a label, whether it's right or wrong, doesn't matter. And they're able to either, they're either able to confirm or defend against that label and you can just diffuse it right away and the whole purpose is to not put yourself into that that state because the most important thing to remember is that the person you're talking to is not your enemy your enemy is the fact is the situation that you both are in that you need to find a way to resolve and you need to collaborate with that other person to find a way forward that was absolutely awesome. I'm just going to like, if it was a mic drop in my office right now, I would pick it up and drop it on the floor because what you, I, I couldn't help but describe, there was a couple of things. So I use the calm meditation app every day and she often talks about the permanence of a feeling. And we can often get so stuck on feeling that a feeling is permanent versus that it's just a feeling it can pass. And the idea that you need to think about when you think of a feeling or your life or really everything that really comes in between the two years is this all movie theater. And I couldn't help but think of that when you were having your talking about the communication that like, I really want to pretend and think in my head, like this is a movie theater. Like I'm looking at whatever I'm observing my, with my eyes in a movie and I'm just observing it. Like just cause someone, and just cause like, if it was like a mission impossible movie, just cause someone's fleeting down a skyscraper doesn't mean I'm going to die. It just means that that's what's happening in the movie that I'm watching. And like you can feel maybe a little bit of adrenaline with them or your heart can get pumping. But it's just a, a movie of interpretation in front of you. And But so often we forget that it's a movie. We actually feel almost like a hologram in like, if you think of if I'm a Star Trek guy. So if you go into a holodeck and you're living this thing out in real life, that's how often how we feel with our emotions. That it's just this artificial world created around us and we are in it. And when a hologram yells at us, we feel attacked. But in a movie, you don't feel attacked when someone pulls out an M16. So why would you feel attacked in real life? Well, it's because we internalize all of that as it's an attack. It's about me. And really, when you're trying to, someone else has a storm and you're having a good day, it's not about you. It's just about them. And when you separate that, that can be really beautiful. And one other thing I want to point out that when I first heard it, I was like, Damn, I have said that so many times and you did not say, and I want to make sure every dad also picks up, you never asked why. Why is such a trigger word that it's instinctive. I wish there was a way you could un-DNA it in your head because it's part of curiosity. You're like, why did you do that? Like I asked myself that, why does that ball drop? Like that's a question you think about when you're like, why would you do that? When you use it in connection with relationships, it always opens a door of judgment. And every time you say why, you already have a prejudgment in your head and they automatically go into a mode of defending what you are, whatever they think versus like what, trying to get what maybe you just want to have a regular conversation and it goes from zero to 10 in 10 seconds and you're like, what just happened here? I just wanted to understand why you're doing something. But when you lead with that why, that is 
like in a hostage negotiation, that's when the hostages die inside because you're asking like, why are you crazy? Why can't you just come out the door? Boom, they're going to blow up the, the people they're holding inside the bank. And you never said that. And that's something I want all the dads to listen out there. When you use the word why, you're leading with a prejudgment. And if you want to understand the other verse person's view on something, you have to be un. Right. So what and how are the only two questions that you really need? Why is hostile? Uh, except for very specific situations. But for the most part, you stay away from why. Who and where are useless? Because it doesn't matter who it is or where it happened. All that matters is what happened and how it happened. How it can be resolved. What can be done to overcome this? Who and where doesn't solve that at all? So by asking those questions, you basically take up space and no one feels like they're understood, respected, or valued. And or that, also validated, which is something also you want to do in a communicate. When like when you right. start understanding the different mechanics of things you can implement in a conversation, humans have a very big desire to be validated. And if you lead with why, they're not going to be validated. They're going to feel shame from whatever right. maybe they're feeling. Exactly. Now, the only time you want to use why is if you are instigating someone to defend why they should trust you or why they should go along with what you want them to go along with why they should want the same things that you want because now you are you're creating a dynamic where they are defending your um beliefs now that that can be sometimes a little bit manipulative so i even stay away from that for the most part unless i've already developed a bit of rapport with them and now like in a sales call i want to have them convert themselves i'll ask that why question towards the very end but it's something that, for the most part, I stay away from until I know that it's safe to do so. You know, I never put this two and two together, but I thought when you were talking about the, the why there. So I, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek and start with why. And start with why is often something you hear a lot. Like in business, you're like, oh, you need to start with why. And it's the exact opposite. This is like the one area where Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, absolutely crushes and fails. Because in a relationship, you don't lead with why. Maybe when you're building something, you can start with why. But when you are building a relationship, do not start with why. And I never really saw it as I've always kind of considered start with why the book is a Bible. But in this particular case, start with why is the exact opposite you want to lead with. Right. So one thing I will say about Simon Sinek is that he is a very, very sharp and astute man. And I read his book and there's a lot of it that makes sense. I think the title could have been changed. But really, when you're finding the why, you can find out the why without asking the why. When you're finding out a why, what you're really doing is finding out the person's ideology. Once you understand the ideology, or what Chris Voss calls the black swans, the, the, the pieces of information that a person will hold on to, because if they get found out, then the entire argument is lost. They've lost. Once, they're, once a person's why is discovered, their motivation, the value, the moral is found out, then everything gets diffused. You can use that to unlock everything about them that keeps them resistant to you. I absolutely love that. And I've also, when, when you were saying ideology, I always kind of uh, frame it as trying to understand the view of the world that they see it. Because there's one also, there's a principle within relationships. And when you're trying to prove yourself right or wrong, is whatever you're trying to do from their point of view, whatever they're doing, whatever behavior, doesn't matter whether it's good or bad from your point of view, even a, a bank robber inside a bank, they see that as the, the most logical choice that they could have made. Like there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong in their head. That decision is the most logical conclusion they came to that day. And you always have to lead with that idea that when someone is arguing a point, like whatever behavior you're trying to change or understand from their view, whatever they're doing, they view it as 100% correct. So trying to understand the worldview that they see their life through is something that, and also allows you to build empathy. Like I've had conversations with dads that are foster parents. I've had conversations with dads that are adoptive parents. Those are worldviews that I never would have understood unless I had a conversation with those dads. Those have allowed me to look through life in a different way, to value different things, to appreciate different things. And again, and you come with those, those judgmental questions, you, you miss out on that opportunity to try to enrich your life as well. And that, that's one of the reasons why the question, how did we get here, is so powerful. Because it causes a person to really retrace in their mind the steps that they took, the decisions that they made. And it 
puts ownership back on them and makes them realize that, yeah, they're the ones who actually created the situation. In that moment, they can feel, if, if it's a bad situation, they can feel remorse. If it's a good situation, they can feel empowered. Now, it's possible to ask that question with the purpose of making the person feel empowered, even if they've made a choice that led them to a wrong path. So let's say that you get into a wild and crazy argument with your wife or with your, or, or, uh, with your spouse. And I've had these, I had, I had one of these two nights ago where I became so flipping mad because something was burning and it got to the point where I was feeling out of control. And the way that I regain control is I get mad. I start going to a flurry. But at that moment, people can't talk to me because I don't have the language. I don't have the ability of, of speaking. All I can do is act. And if you are not helping me, you're the enemy. So I, we had a situation like that a couple of days ago. And after everything settled down, we were able to come back to it and reinvestigate what happened. And my wife asked a question that was very useful. She said, what is it that can be done to avoid this in the future? It wasn't that, why do you do this? Because that would have, she, she, she's taken a lot of the uh, same courses that I have, which is good. So she was able to look at this from a very um, distant perspective, dissociating her own emotions from, from the situation. And we were able to come to a, um, understanding of, okay, so once it gets to this point, if nothing is done, then the best option to do is just to walk away and allow things just to happen as they do, because there's no talking to me. There's no working with me. There's just, okay, he's, he's there. It's, it's just, uh, and that's just my reaction, trying to control what's going on and fix it, knowing that I have to work faster and faster and can't be distracted so that I can regain control. You hit home with that story there. And I can say that I often get that same way. And when other people get it, whether it be work, doesn't matter. I've, I've kind of taken this to advice that when, you, especially from the example of your wife, like she can't control you. She can have a conversation with you. She can maybe try to drive a different behavior, but she can't control you and you can't control her. And there's often times where we desire that control. So we try to be manipulative to gain that control, but you don't, you don't have it. It's an illusion. And when those moments happen, I've kind of flipped your question a little bit to focus inward. I'll kind of ask two things. Did I do anything within my day that led up to helping this moment happen? And there's usually something that I did that increased the likelihood of this happening. And then number two is kind of like yours. What could I, because then I'm taking control back because I can only control myself. What can I do? to make sure that this never happens again? What can, was there a new procedure, a new process, whatever it may be, a new routine or a new affirmation or a new connection or a new question? What can I do myself to ensure that this never happens? Because when you take those internally, well, then you give yourself power. You empower yourself to try to gain that control without controlling the other person. Because almost every time you go inward, we don't like admitting it, but there's generally something we could have done that maybe would have prevented it, that would have made it a little bit easier, or made us receive the wind, the anger, the storm a little bit calmer. Maybe we had a bad day at work and we came home and we weren't prepared to hear what your wife had to say. And you maybe could have had a better day, or structured your day better, spent five minutes in your car before walking through the door so that you're ready to receive that. And then it wouldn't have exploded because you would have been able to be calm, untriggered in that moment versus exhausted, ready to just break yourself. And there's always something you can control within yourself. And we don't actually honor that choice. We always outsource it to everybody else. And it's always easier to blame other people in your life for your problems versus internalizing them and saying, what can I do to move my life forward? And when you do that, you, you create the possibility of a plan being, being uh, possible. Now, the thing with plans is that they have to be practiced over time. Because just because you have a plan doesn't mean it's going to work the first time you try to implement it because you still have those old patterns that are still very fresh. And it takes time to be able to adopt a new pattern and re release the old ones. So the more you practice it and the more you practice self-compassion by through the interactions with others and realizing that this is just something that, that, I, that I do right now. It, I'm working on 
changing it is just something that I've done at this moment, and that's okay because I'm still working on fixing it, and eventually it will pass. And giving yourself that break, giving yourself that sense that it's not hopeless, you, you're not doomed to be this way your entire life. It's just that at this moment, you went back to an old pattern that you are working on changing. This is something I relate to the gym. So two years ago, I really tackled a fear of the gym and kind of like the failure of that, of the feeling of not getting, um, just doing anything in the gym that actually related to a result I wanted. And I quickly realized that like putting in the reps of the gym, I learned more about life than at the gym than I did about actually improving my health. And this particular case is a perfect example. And everything that we've talked about is a, is kind of like a crescendo to this moment that like all of this happens in conversation. All of this happens in a relationship. And oftentimes you maybe don't feel safe to do it with relationships, say in your inner circle or even your outer circle, but airports, grocery stores, stores, a bar, really every interaction you have that's within the serendipity that is life, those are the places where you can safely practice, maybe explode even like, man, that was a freaking horrible conversation that I just had. And you walk away and you start over. Like it's, it's perfectly fine to practice at the airport at a bar with random people because you're never going to see them again. Probably maybe you will, but that'd be really even more odd and just practice in those environments because every time you put a rep in a muscle at the gym, your muscle gets stronger. And if you relate that to relationships, conversations, working on this stuff, working through like, Oh, I just had a conversation with the guy at the bar and you really made me feel odd. Sit on the airplane, try to figure out why. And then the next time you try it again, that R and D process is just like putting in a rep at the gym. And every time you practice it, it gets stronger and it's very safe to practice in those open environments of society. Now, this interview is being recorded in coronavirus, so all those environments are a little bit different right now. But when they get back to being on, just remember, you won't explode by saying hello and having a conversation with someone at the grocery store, someone at the library. I, one of my best friends is the dad that I met at the library just because I said hello. And that wouldn't have ever happened if I wasn't naturally trying to practice with dads at the library because when dad brings his kids to the library, it usually elevates them to be a pretty good dad. So I was like, I, I want to try to bring those in my life. And those practices let me get comfortable. And once you get comfortable, you feel like you can do it. And then you be yourself more often. And then you can bring that into your inner circle and have more of yourself come out. So Jason, I want to wrap up this interview. But before you, before we hang up and, and let, go, let you go back, I wanted you to wrap up one piece of advice that you want to make sure that out of all the things that we talked about, maybe it's something not even related to what we talked about, some of your best piece of dad advice. What's your best dad advice for dads out there to come home and be connected with their family and create a, a legacy with their family as well? So when I created the Relationship Building Academy, I wanted a way to be able to summarize everything that I, I help people realize in one sentence. and it was kind of hard, but what I came up with is find opportunities to be kind and kindness will find you in return. That is so beautiful. And it's, uh, it's, I, I kind of like break the word friendships down. So I like to always say friendships are like literal ships. And so the more ships you have in the ocean of your life, the more opportunity floats ashore to yourself. And every friendship you create is a ship out there. And you essentially get to a point where you have an armada, which is your kind of your network. And that is just you showing up as a kind person. But that kindness floats back ashore because a friendship literally can be that one thing that changes your life. But if you don't have that friend, they can't change your life. And my best transition advice that I repeat for, for dads is the amount of opportunity that you have in your life is directly proportional to the amount of strangers that you talk to daily. Jason, if people want to connect with you and learn anything more about you, where's the best place to connect with you? So you can connect with me on Facebook. Uh, my, you can search up jason.ian.matthews. That's uh, jason.ian.m-a-t-t-h-e-w-s, jason.ian.matthews. Yeah, and you'll be able to go on there. You'll be able to download um, an ebook that I wrote called Cha uh, Creating Life-Changing Relationships Using Three Secrets. And then you can uh, go get into my world through that. Yeah, those are, those are really the two places to reach me on Facebook or on my website. Well, Jason, this conversation was absolutely awesome. I'm pretty sure that whatever concrete slab people had built up in their minds, we just shattered it and put it in a million pieces because so much of the crap that we believe inside our two ears, or between our head, between our two ears, is just BS. And the crap that we believe is not necessarily true. It's not permanent. You can change it. It's just a feeling. 
keep remind remember that your life is a movie theater and you're just watching it unfold with the lens of what you've experienced and that your really your life can change with one relationship and just like when you find your wife or your girlfriend like your life starts getting better the same thing can happen with a friend so i love the conversation jason and i'm glad to get this episode out and i really appreciate you giving us your time and i'm more excited that our friendship is just getting started as well likewise thank you so much for having me ben this, this is a fantastic conversation I've really enjoyed. that's a wrap and thank you for listening to today's show and i really hope you enjoyed it the lifeblood of any new podcast are the reviews. If you haven't reviewed the podcast yet on iTunes, I would really appreciate it, and you will help us get the message out to even more military veteran dads. As John Maxwell says, if there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. Dads, it's time to come home.